what would an AI automated weapon potentially look like? Very basically definition, it's a, it's a weapon system of some kind that the machine makes the decision on its own to attack. So there's like no human intervention. So like you're saying like it recognizes that hey, this person's on the top 10 most wanted list and you know, the image is captured somewhere and, you know, the AI system makes a decision, okay, I'm going to send a drone to take the strike and take that person out. The following is a conversation with Neil Sahota, the lead artificial intelligence advisor to the United Nations. Unsurprisingly, this was a fascinating conversation. We talk about the UN's role in coordinating the international response to AI, some of the biggest opportunities ahead of us, as well as the very real global threats to manage. Uh, this is starting to affect us all, and Neil did a brilliant job of framing how to think about what's happening, some great advice about how to approach employment in this new era, and how we work with AI rather than against it. I think this is one of the most important interviews that we've done so far, so it is absolutely worth your time, and thank you very much to Neil for coming on his links and everything else you need are in the description so enjoy this episode neil uh, thank you very much for coming on the show it's going to be a interesting conversation no doubt so i'm excited for this yeah i'm looking forward to luke and thanks for having me on the show of course man so let's let's start maybe you could just explain people to people your role because uh yeah it's, it's a super interesting role tell us a bit about yourself and, and uh what you do I wear a couple of hats, but I think part of the, the most important one is I serve as the United Nations AI advisor. So I help them actually create the AI for Good initiative, which is uh, essentially using AI and other emerging technology like the metaverse to actually create solutions around the sustainable development goals. So for people that are not familiar with that, that's 17 goals that member nations agree to to try and create a better world and society. So things like zero hunger, access to justice, good health. I won't bore you with all 17, but hopefully you get the idea. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay. And yeah, I mean, we, we've covered AI in various forms uh, on this show, uh, you know, from a, a good few months ago when it's really become into public consciousness. I'd, I don't want to fear monger because there's, there's loads of great things happening as well. But I, I do think speaking to kind of my friends who aren't necessarily working in this world, like it, it's interesting seeing what filters down to them and i am starting to get some messages where people are kind of getting worried i mean at first we saw a lot of kind of fun interesting tools chat gpt obviously kind of boosting productivity and that was really interesting uh you know then things like voice cloning and more recently kind of really uh, impressive accurate text to video and kind of lip lip syncing things and there's the sort of conversation around the rumors of, of job losses and that kind of thing but the writers and actors strike we're seeing sort of the first public consciousness of, of that coming uh, and in this conversation we're, we're going to talk about sort of global coordinated responses to ai as a matter of security as well so kind of how are you thinking about the moment that we're in right now uh in regards to, to ai for sort of the average person it's interesting there's a lot to unpack there right i think the average person has really become real right i think chat gpt changed the equation at the, at the beginning of the year because now you have a system like that that can do some routine daily tasks for the average person. So suddenly they can use it. It's not like these specialized things that were happening the past 10, 12 years. And I think for some people, they're like, that's just cool. Can help me find a job, do this. And for some people, it freaked them out because they're like, wow, this thing can do some of the things that I do. What does that mean? Right. And I think, like you mentioned, the writer's strike, I think that's part of what's going on there that if I remember correctly they actually struck early right I think they struck I think a couple of months before anyone was expecting 
in large part because of what they saw ChatGPT go from 10,000 users to 100 million users in four weeks. They realized that, wait a second, you could use ChatGPT to help write like movie scripts or TV scripts, right? It, it can't do it all by itself. But I think that's what it, one of the things, because one of their demands is, is there's no use of AI to make movies and TV shows. But there have been a lot of AI tools like cinematographers, video editors, sound editors use. They're kind of freaked out because they're like, wait a second, we need to use those tools. So it's it's the challenge. I, I kind of wish, you know, I think this is why we're, the mindset's so important that they're kind of wired to look at things as a threat, right? I think in Western culture, because of the way we grew up, movies, books, was always human versus machine, right? So it was always adversarial. Whereas you look at like Eastern culture, their books, movies, that kind of stuff, the you know, machines, AI, robots were always helpers, assistants. So in Western culture, we look at things like the writers, they see a threat and say, well, this could take away some jobs. They could. Whereas in Eastern culture, they're wired to look for opportunities and say, hey, I could use this tool to write more scripts, better quality scripts, and make more money. So I think that's that's the challenge that we have. That's the, the challenge I think the average person has is when, I, when we look at these tools, is it a threat or is it an opportunity? Mm. Yeah, that's well framed actually, and it's, it's good to yeah think about it on a on a global scale like that as well. Yeah, you can you can approach it in a couple of different ways for sure. When you're having these conversations on uh, you know with the, with the UN and and uh, I know the United Nations Security Council held its first kind of formal discussion on AI last month. What things you talk about there? What was what was to come out of that conversation? There are there are a few things that we had to tackle, right? I, I don't think anyone's going to dispute the need to like regulate like AI and you know what's good policy and legislation. I think the first and foremost question question was we want to ask should the UN be involved? And of course the answer is yes. The second is what kind of role should the UN take? And then based off of that, what's kind of the right structure, framework to make that happen? And you know, I, I don't think there were, I don't think there was really a lot of pushback against the UN playing some role. In fact, the United Nations is probably one of the few organizations out there that really has the the trust and the credibility to kind of lead this effort, right? If I hate to say this, one of the big tech companies came out and said, "Hey, we will." lead this effort, people will be like, well, what are they going to get out of it, right? Why, why are they doing this? They've got some secret agenda. That's the one advantage I think the UN has is no one is saying there's a secret agenda there. Then the question becomes is, what's what's the right structure? You, you put this in existing agency, you form a consortium, and then you know we were kind of debating internally that very question when... Uh, the Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez kind of maybe jumped the gun a little bit last week and announced that the the UN should form a agency just on artificial intelligence. So that that was a little bit of a, a surprise. I mean, that's one of the ideas that was being tossed around. You know, perhaps even an agency just on the governance of science and technology, but because it wasn't kind of internally socialized first, I think it caught a lot of people off guard. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um yeah, I mean, those conversations obviously uh, need to happen. And, and we'll talk a little bit about the speed of technology moving faster than regulation sometimes and, and uh, you know, how to make sure that we are on track with, with keeping stuff safe. One of the things I read that came out of it as well was 
the banning or, or the suggestion to ban the use of AI completely in automated weapons of war by 2026. So that is obviously a really interesting topic and one that feels scary at first. Maybe you could talk to us a bit more about that. What what would an AI automated weapon potentially look like? I, I've seen uh, Elon Musk talk about kind of uh, drones that could easily easily train on someone's face or something like that. So maybe you could kind of break that down for us and uh, yeah, explain uh, your thoughts and, and where things sit with that conversation. Yeah, so we, we actually call that the LAWS initiative, Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems. And essentially, it very basically definition, it's a, it's a weapon system of some kind that the machine makes the decision on its own to attack. So there's like no human intervention. So like you're saying, like it recognizes that hey, this person's on the top 10 most wanted list and you know, the image is captured somewhere and, you know, the AI system makes a decision, okay, I'm going to send a drone to take the strike and take that person out. So there's no real human decision directly involved in that. So that's what we call lethal laws. The concern about that is if it makes a mistake or the situation has changed or maybe that person is in a very public area, do these things go, you know, go haywire i i don't know if you've heard about the story that you know china launched the spouse program back in what was it 2018 2019 so you know if you did you had points so if you did good things you got extra points if you did bad things you got points deducted and if your points fell below a certain level you couldn't get access to services like you couldn't ride the uh, planes or trains those types of things and there was a famous incidents where uh, i think it was a chinese newscaster that uh, she got, she was apparently caught jaywalking, locked her points down, so she got denied services. And she's like, "I was I didn't jaywalk. I was never in that city, and all these other things." And long story short, they they sent her the proof a couple of months later. And if you watch it, and it's actually a bus, and on the bus is her her picture, like an advertisement. And the bus was making her, it was bus was making her illegal right turn. But the cameras caught her face and thought it was her walking across the street. And so that's why she got busted. She's like, she was totally innocent. She was right. But for months, she was stuck and fully could finally correct that. So if that kind of situation happens, imagine that you have an autonomous weapon system makes a similar type of mistake. You can't kind of undo that damage. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting, a scary example, isn't it? Of yeah, of where errors can, can kind of seep into stuff and these things can be, become pretty serious. When the suggestion is to, is to ban it, make it illegal, how practical is that? I guess there's always this kind of um, battle between innovation, where you want people to experiment with all this technology because it can do really great things. And also, if you if you regulate too heavily in one region, well, then maybe another region in the world uh, makes their own rules and they go off and kind of uh, have a, there's an imbalance of power there. So, so sort of how practical is it to, to make that illegal? Or is it more about the deterrent? of the kind of punishments if it's found. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a deterrent, Luke, and it's kind of trying to create a mindset. Are, are bad actors going to do bad things? Yeah. Is someone going to say, no, screw it, I'm still going to use a lethal autonomous weapon system? There, there's nothing you can really do to stop that, but you can get most people to agree not to do that. It's almost like nuclear weapons. that we all A lot of people have them, but the kind of agreement is we're, we're not really going to use them because of the devastation it could cause. So... It's the same mode of thinking. There's no way to just absolutely prevent it. That's just not realistically prob- probable. But 
and kind of create that that mindset and consent and say, okay, wait, let's step back. Let's not take the human out of the equation because if you do, it's not just these mistakes can happen. You're kind of dehumanizing like war and violence. And I think that's even worse. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So some, some people might push back on that and say to dehumanize war might be a good thing if humans weren't involved. When, when you think about, you know, as kind of dark as it is, if there was a war in future where this technology was involved in some way, what does that look like? Are we talking about a a situation where it's going to be kind of machines that would battle each other more uh, or whether it be more cyber-based or both of those things? Would humans be involved at all? What would you say to someone who, who might suggest that that would be a better outcome if it had to happen? Big questions, obviously. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's, it's probably going to be more cyber stuff rather than robots battling each other. But, uh, you know, to go kind of hyperculture here, we've already seen how this played out in the 1960s. I think Star Trek did an episode on this. I, I don't quite remember the title or the thing, but it was there were two planets that were battling each other, but it was all run by computers. It was all simulated. So if there was a simulated attack and something blew up, they would send these people to go off and die in these disintegrator machines, right? But they did that. They've been doing that for 500 years because they said, well, there's no real damage, our art, our culture, all these things still survive. Just people just, when they attack, I have to die, I have to die. They totally dehumanized war, right? They forgot kind of the ugliness and stuff as to why we shouldn't have war in the first place. They had no incentive to ever stop, you know, this you know, battle of 500 plus years until, you know, if I remember correctly, uh, Captain Kirk took away their computers. And then suddenly they were forced to confront the realities that we'd have to use real weapons and actually destroy real things. And then they're like, okay, that's probably not a good way to try and resolve our issue. Interesting. Okay, that's, yeah, that's another uh, interesting way to frame stuff. Um, I guess when we're thinking about kind of uh, power dynamics a little bit and, and that deterrence, and hopefully we obviously won't get to that stage, but does, the other question that came to mind was, does compute power, so there's lots of global conversations about kind of GPUs and, and, uh, you know, where they are uh, made in the world and that kind of thing. Does that in your mind become a very finite, important resource for sort of the powers of the future, whoever has the, the most kind of GPU power has the biggest deterrent to sort of not use it in a similar way to sort of nuclear weapons, I guess. Yeah. And it's, but it's true for AI in general, Luke, it's not just about like laws. The, the, the real truth is there's already a chip shortage. And when it comes to, to tech in general, infrastructure has always been kind of the redheaded stepchild, you know, that it's been ignored. We haven't made huge investments into it for almost 40 years. We've just reached the point now where you can, you know, chips are only so big, you only put so many pins on them. And even though they're like these super small cranes now, kind of reach the limit of our computing power. So unless we start stacking millions or billions of chips on top of each other there's got to be a better better way which is why you see the race for quantum computers you see the race for neuromorphic chips so you're starting to see a push really back into infrastructure to support some of this stuff but you're also right if someone or some country makes a major breakthrough it's a huge leg up on everybody else i mean to get give you an example of this was it what 2014 i was doing some work with ted and so we actually had IBM Watson <clears throat> watch all the TED and TEDx talks. And so you could go and ask Watson, 
hey, I, I want to learn about this subject. And Watson would pull up not just the appropriate videos, but the appropriate time segments. Right? You really want to watch this talk from you know nine minutes, 12 seconds to 13 minutes, 42 seconds, whatever. And people thought that was fantastic. And like, whether you have Watson watch all the videos on YouTube, right? I mean, there's, there's so much stuff out there. You could make life a lot easier. And it's like, there's not enough computing power in the universe right now to do that. Right. Think about how many videos are out there and all the training stuff, but that's what we're really talking about. We've reached a point now where the engine can't go, it can't crank any more horsepower out. There's a lot more work we need to be done. There's a lot of things that could be done faster. It's just our infrastructure is now limited to do that. So again, we can use that for good things like precision medicine, you know, improving food production and safety, or we could use it to create autonomous weapons or deep fake videos so it's all about how we choose to wield these tools yeah that's uh that is fascinating that and maybe that is a good thing that we kind of have reached that infrastructure limit at the minute if there was any chance of maybe slowing things down a little bit maybe that is sort of the uh roadblock that might be good and i hope humans use this stuff for good obviously um I want to ask as well, I spoke to someone recently, um, Edward Saatchi, who, who uh, is creating kind of simulation, um, and he talked about the next phase of AI. We've gone from kind of gen- generative to, to action AIs. And when we're talking about cyber crime and stuff, we, we're getting to the point where AI agents can sort of uh, connect to the economy and maybe have their own crypto wallets and that kind of thing. Is that an area that you think can talk about uh, much it's a slight tangent but it, that feels interesting to me that ai agents can act like humans can on the internet soon maybe that's a different sort of avenue of things to consider it's it's uh it's not surprising right the the holy grail has always been kind of this ai concierge that it knows you as well as you know yourself so it can anticipate your needs and do things like that ever watched the show black mirror that was an episode i think called white christmas with john ham where they actually take your brain and grams, and that's how they create that AI agent for you. It's actually something we do talk about because it's it's not just like the crypto wallets, but you're probably going to see in the near future because people are already using, like Marcus are using AI to try and target you. So this is not like personalized advertising, it's like individualized advertising because now they know what words to use for you, what rewards or incentives to offer you, what channels they're going to connect you. At some point, it's going to be that AI kind of bot that's trying to sell you something is going to try and convince your AI agent instead because the AI agent's going to be making these decisions for you. So the control around a crypto wallet or a bank account, this is probably going to happen in the real near future. And so it's something we, we talk about because, again, if, if something goes wrong, something gets corrupted, you get bad actors, the quickness of the damage and the scale of damage is so large that it's going to be hard to recover. So we really have to kind of think through, do a lot of scenario planning. Again, this is unfortunately where we as humans kind of suck, right? We're not good at anticipating other uses or misuses. That's why we're constantly surprised by some. That is a trait of humans, isn't it? And, you know, the pandemic being a great example of very few people kind of modeled that correctly of, of the moment we were in before it happened. Do you think that, again, don't want to, want to be careful not to kind of fear monger, but it, do do you think that we are in a similar moment now where we're like, okay, all this stuff's happening, but we're modeling it wrong and maybe we'll see something 
bad happen first and then everyone re- realize or there'll be an exponential moment and we uh, humans aren't very good at predicting or if i got that wrong i'm not sure no yeah unfortunately spot on luke that that's our problem is that we've always had a reactive kind of mindset right something bad happens oh why did this happen then we'll take steps to prevent that from happening again and it's worked for thousands of years right but it's like again the rate of change is so fast and the volume of impact is so great it's like you can't do that anymore human beings for better or worse we're wired for that fast moving immediate threat right something is shaking in the bushes what's going on it's the slow moving long-term stuff that we really suck at right you mentioned the pandemic the great example right and we look back, it's like, wow, well, how can we didn't see that coming? It's like, we did. It was just, it started off slow, right? And so no one thought it would be as, as bad as it would as, until it was. Climate change is the exact same thing, right? So it's like some of these big things, and it's like we're going to reach a point of where the damage is just so big, there's no recovering from it, right? We have to go from this reactive mindset to a proactive mindset when it comes to all emerging technology, actually, right? It, you talk about the, the metaverse. For example, you got AI and the metaverse getting combined, and it's, you could do like digital twins, it's hoping with like digital farms to produce, figure out how to produce more food. At the same time, you have deep fakes, right? You have people, bad actors, using this for malicious intent to, to trick people or to make them make decisions that may not be in the best interest. That's that's the challenge. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. That that is certainly the challenge, isn't it? One of the other challenges that people are talking about a lot at the moment is slightly more subtle, but it's obviously going to be really important, is that about identity, because we are approaching this moment where uh, it's going to be very difficult to, to tell what is real online. What do you think about uh, you know the, how we solve that? Obviously, WorldCoin has been in the press a lot recently as a way to sort of uh, scam retinas and, and prove uh, that you are at least human uh, that way. I don't know if that's the right way to go i'm not sure but how do you think about that problem because that feels like one that's going to need to be solved relatively soon that, that it's something that we're constantly trying to figure out like you know world coin it's a it's a it's a it's a the idea is good mm. that's why i should put it the idea is good at least you're thinking about a solution but if i remember right they've already been able to spoof world coin so this is an authentication system it's it's already got some flaws in it I know that the Screen Actors Guild, they're all over this, trying to protect digital likeness because there are quite a few celebrities that do use digital twins. I can't name names, but they let them do a greater volume of work. But then there was someone, I think it was in Thailand, they were doing an advertisement for, I think, for coffee or something, and it wasn't actually them. It was a total deep fake. So they've been trying to figure out, do you, do you put like some sort of digital fingerprint on there? Does it have to be some sort of like blockchain kind of? You know, authentication system, do you do some hashing or something? That's what everyone's trying to figure out because there's a lot of traditional tools or methods we could use, but they're all hackable. So how do you do this, right? And I've heard people say, well, can't you just create AI systems that will look at these like videos or audio files and say whether it's authentic or not, it's like, is it a deep fake? And it's like, well... No, because deep fakes are actually AI systems trained to fool other AI systems. And given the volume of deep fake uh, content that could be put out, again, you run into the infrastructure problem. Every piece of content that gets generated, you have to go check that. And 
I think, unfortunately, this is trying to become impactful in the average person's life. Look, I don't know if you heard about, this was a few months ago, but these guys were creating deep fake audios of people's children. So they would call up and pretend like, you're a kidnapped kid, you got to send us some money, you know? And they hear their kids thing and they, they time it so when their kids in school, so they can't use their phone. And, you know, it's like, it's a very real problem. So we were trying to figure out what's, what's an effective solution that can't really be hacked, right? Yeah. And it's scary, it's scary talking about it, isn't it? Because, yes, all of these things are happening and they are problematic. Like, are we, are, are we close to finding a solution or is that something that's just that's happening now? Like, that is, that is the conversation. Like, uh... I, I don't think we have, like, you know, we're, I, I can't say we're close to a, a global kind of solution. And by that, I mean, like, one that's going to ease across all kind of content. Right now, it's kind of like you, the price of freedom is ever constant vigilance. You have to do the same thing. So if you hear something, you see a video, you have to kind of pay attention and say, does something seem a little off? There's something kind of weird about the body language. Something wrong with shadowing. You really just got to pay attention. But images are the hardest to detect because there's no motion, right? It's just a still image. Like there's a deep fake of the Pentagon, like I think on fire or something, and it's that's really hard to look at and say, is that real or not? That's, I think, the challenge that we're going to have. Yeah, I spoke to uh, someone on this topic recently as well who was talking about actually maybe the most uh, obvious cases like a world leader saying something malicious are probably not actually the biggest threat because they'll be very scrutinized and people will be aware to scrutinize them. But if we get to a point where people just sort of lose hoping that they just they don't know what is real at all and it's sort of uh death by a thousand cuts because people just sort of stop trusting media would you agree that is shaping up to be more of a, a problem is that that's where people should really need to pay attention is is not sort of losing trust and, and i guess trustworthy sources are going to be even, ever more important yeah that i think that's the biggest problem that we're rapidly approaching a, a state where people are not going to believe in information Think about how crazy that is, is that you can't really trust information or you have one or two very trusted sources and those could be totally faked out. You know, the 2024 elections that are coming up in the United States, everyone's calling it the deep fake election. In fact, we've already seen instances now of candidates creating deep fakes of their opponents and distributing that out. But they're they're doing it, it's not it's like on this massive scale, they're sending it to like these thousand people over here. People are getting like a different one because it happens on such a smaller scale, it's harder to even detect that that's going on in the first place. So, what does that mean? And then you can take that down to the average person. I mean, I hate to say this, but like deep fakes got their start in revenge porn. There used to be a mobile app called Deep Porn. So, you have a bad breakup with someone, was an app where you could take some pictures or videos of them and was kind of not not the greatest quality, thankfully, but create a fake pornographic video of it. What does that average person do? What's their recourse? Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it once it's there, it's there. The damage is kind of done initially, at least, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's really difficult stuff for sure. We are going to get onto uh, AI for Good uh, Global Summit and initiative to talk about good stuff as well. I wanted just to get your thoughts on you know the other conversation is around. Uh, uh, employment and universal basic income as well. The, the idea that will, uh, you know, AI is going to replace a lot of jobs. So universal basic income where we get a sort of set amount of money might be something that happens. 
it's in its early stages. I don't know. But how do you feel about that? Is, is that something that we should, in the same way that when we were talking about the pandemic and things coming, is that something we should take seriously that people should just at least think about, be aware of, research perhaps or or not? It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, it gets debated a lot, right? Should there be some minimal level of quality of life guaranteed through UBI? Should people be able to own their own data and monetize that, you know, sell it to these companies? Is that another way of generating the income? It, it's tough to say, but I think what a lot of people also kind of overlook is while a lot of jobs will go away, a lot of jobs will get created. So like the World Economic Forum has said in the next five years, about 85 million jobs will probably go away because of AI and robot automation. From the same period, by the time period, 97 million new jobs are going to be created. So I think there's also a question of how do we retrain some of the existing workforce to get ready for these jobs and how do you train the future workforce for these jobs? Because I think a five-year-old kid today, by the time they graduate high school, 40% of the jobs that exist today will be gone, will be different types of jobs. I think that's something we don't talk about enough. And again, it's this reactive mindset. Right? I think people think, well, autonomous vehicles, that's 20 years away, right? We don't need to worry about taxi drivers and truck drivers. And it's like, no, autonomous vehicles are probably like five or six years away. If you're not retraining those guys now, they're going to be left in the cold. I think that's really the biggest challenge. We talk about job loss. Yeah, but I think there's also a shift and we're not really doing enough to get people ready for that. Uh, you know, Singapore, I think, has actually done a magnificent job. When Sophia the robot was granted citizenship by Saudi Arabia back in 2016, that really triggered them. Like, well, wait a second. There's going to be this whole tsunami of change coming. They actually jumped out in front of it and started saying, like, okay, what are those skills going to be? How we start retraining people? They put money and resources in. They created things for the average person to learn and figure out how to use. I kind of wish that happened on a much greater scale across all the countries because we're totally unprepared for this massive change about that. Yeah, it's it's a massive issue. And, you know, if there's parents listening and maybe their kids are in the education system as it is at the moment, maybe they are thinking about going to university or that kind of thing. Obviously, it's sort of an impossible question to ask, but in some ways, there's the line of like, everything's going to change so much. Like, it almost feels a little bit, wasted time certain things to learn apart from you know like the social skills and the transferable skills and stuff like that um but at the same time you don't want to kind of do nothing and wait for, wait for the world to change and, and not be proactive and uh not progress with your career so maybe what would be your like advice or your your sort of uh framework for for thinking about if you're that age and you're about to go into the workforce how do you approach that in a proactive way knowing that so much change is coming it's a great question, Luke. I, I actually tell people you have to think about this in terms of not artificial intelligence and human intelligence, but hybrid intelligence. So while machines are good at some things, there are things that people are much better at. And it's the complement of human and machine together, right? It's human capabilities augmented by machine abilities is really the future. So, you know, the creative thinking, the ability to to imagine, to the kind of the instinctive and, you know, make that you know, next leap of conclusion, those are not things that machines are good at. Machines can only do what we teach them. We, we don't know how to teach creativity. And so I always tell people there's five skills. It doesn't matter what the jobs of tomorrow are. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're a space miner or you're a farmer, right? You're creating precision drugs for people. There's five skills that all the jobs of the future are going to require. 
creative thinking, the essential skills, so communication, collaboration, negotiation, facilitation, problem solving, understanding how to use some of these emerging technology tools, the capability. So you don't need to know how the hammer is built. You just have to know how to use the hammer. And then some domain to apply these skills into, whether that's healthcare or finance or marketing, whatever it might be. Those are the five things you have to have in your toolkit. You can do it. You can be able to do any job of tomorrow that way. It's not, it's not rocket science, but again, everyone thinks like, I have to know what the job is. I know what the activities, of the job are, and I can reverse engineer the skills. And it's like, we know what the bag of skills have to be. It's just, it's going to be, we, we don't teach most of those things in school. I mean, massive change the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. And that's that's really valuable um, way to think about it as well, because I think a lot of people have got that question and that helps frame it in a really good way, for sure. Um, another thing, another sort of trend that I'm seeing that I think people are sort of writing off a little bit, but I've spoken to to some individuals about relationships with AI and actually having like a an emotional attachment to to machines. There's a famous story, Replica, which has like a partner that you can create and people are getting very attached to them. For, for better or for worse, there's interesting arguments both sides. Maybe this is a bit of a jump, but from what, how I understand, there is a sort of a population decline. And as you know, there's kind of a, a post-pandemic and cost of living crisis in a lot of places, generally people are having less kids uh, and that is a problem long-term. Maybe that's a cycle that will just go through and it'll come around the other way. Do you connect those dots at all that people will sort of get attached to? to AI and have relationships and, and is that something that, that you think about at the UN and you talk about? It's just something that, uh, yeah, I, I find interesting, if nothing else. It, it, it is, and uh, I hate to say it, it's already started happening, right? You, you may have heard of that woman a few months ago that created, uh, used ChatGPT to create a boyfriend. So ChatGPT became her boyfriend. And now I think she sells that service to other people. You know, warning for parents, if you got your kids listening to this right now, uh, in Japan, they've already created like these haptic suits. And so you can actually have virtual sex with an AI system, right? Full sensation. And, you know, I know a lot of people are like, ah, well, that's crazy, all that kind of stuff. But more and more people are, are unfortunately gravitating to that because there's no fear of rejection, right? If that AI has been trained to be your companion, guess what it's going to do, right? It's not going to reject you. And are we going to sub out human relationships for those machine relationships? I, unfortunately, we can see a very realistic path to that and you know you're talking about the population decline i know most people think that that's ludicrous but world population is still growing it's going to tap out i think around 9.6 billion people and then we're going to hit into a pretty bad decline we've had several generations as you're talking about older kids one kid no kid that we're going to suffer through that if you look at china they're already starting to see the impacts of decades of the one child policy hit them and we worry about that because there's a point of no return where the we can't sustain humanity, <laughs> can't sustain the population, uh, a rapid decline. We could actually go extinct that way. And if we have these other things like people now foregoing uh, human reproduction because they're in a relationship with a machine, that's just going to exasperate the problem. Yeah, yeah, it's another another big thing to think about, isn't it? And um yeah, kind of fascinating topic as well. So there's a lot, lot of really interesting stuff in here, of course. Um, let's talk about the AI for Good Global Summit and the initiative there. Um, brings brings some positivity to us. What what are you working on there? Um, what can we get kind of excited about and and yeah, optimistic about? 
Well, we have over 280 projects going on right now, but um, we've completed, I think, the last five years, about 170 projects. We've been able to impact 1.1 billion people positively so far. So this, the summit is part of the initiative, and it's kind of a little bit of a readout and a way to get more volunteers, build out the ecosystem. But the last summit we did uh, you know, back in July it was very actually robot-focused. So we've seen a lot of advancements from robotics. And so you're seeing like the different things like helping to fight fires, like especially the wildfires or brush fires that are going on. Uh, you're seeing actually more empathy robots. So at least before the pandemic, loneliness was the biggest illness in the world. So this kind of like empathetic robot, again, not meant to be substituting human relationships, but just to give people a safe space, feel something connected, something so they can build their confidence to either get help or you know build regular relationships. But you're also you're you're seeing a lot of other things down more and like law enforcement and all that. Everyone keeps asking me where's Rosie the robot from the Jetsons. I guess everybody wants a uh, a robot maid. <laughs> but uh, right now robots don't have the dexterity to do that. But yeah, I'm on some limited things. I mean, I, people some people have like Roombas and stuff like that. I mean, that's technically a robot. But uh, we actually saw there there are people now that they've actually been able to create like a robotic arm that can do windows. So maybe one day soon you'll have your Rosie the robot. But right now robots are very singular in function. They really can only do one or two things for you. And, but we're just trying to apply that to major things right now, like fighting wildfires. Yeah, that's good to hear. It's good to hear positive stuff there. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to uh, to the uh, robot helper and made in, in future, no doubt for sure. Um, yeah, okay. That, there's so much awesome stuff in there. Thank you so much, Neil. Because uh, I think that the thing that I wanted to sort of get out of this episode was just the average person to listen to it and be like, okay, here's here's what is happening. Here's to be what to be aware of, and here's maybe the mind frame to think about. So if you were going to kind of summarize stuff, and and for just somebody listening who is, uh, you know, AI is starting to affect their lives, how, how would you say to them to kind of approach the future? A big theme seems to be kind of humans and machines together is is the way to go. But yeah, what would be your kind of final thoughts on that? Uh, two pieces of advice for everybody, Luke. First, look at things as an opportunity rather than a threat. I know that's hard to do, but that's really the best way you can make use of this technology. I'm not trying to say there are no bad things that are going to happen. But if you look through the lens of opportunity, you'll find ways to, to avoid some of those threats and actually make some good things happen for you, your your work, your community, whatever it might be. The second is don't look at everything as automation. That's the biggest challenge, right? We're used to computers being able to do something faster or cheaper or less errors. But if you think about automation, you're only tapping into 20% of the capabilities of AI, right? The most successful AI solutions are leveraging those new capabilities. It's the innovation, find a new way of actually doing the work. And I know it's tough because I hear a lot of people say like, you're trying to fix something that's not broken. In a way, that's kind of true, but we also know that what works today is not going to work necessarily in the future. And if you jump ahead of that curve, you don't need to be a passenger on this journey. You could be the driver. So take advantage of that opportunity. Nice. Yeah, well said for sure. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much, Neil. That's really, really fascinating conversation. Where can people kind of follow you and uh, you know keep up to date with, with uh, what's going on with your work as well? Well, you can uh, actually go to my website, which is my name, neilsohoda.com. I'm always pushing out new content and articles. Of course, you can find me on social media, like LinkedIn, Instagram. You know, get my handles, just my name. But uh, I do publish uh, a, a LinkedIn newsletter. So if you're wondering about things, what's going on in AI and the metaverse, we actually write about both. I encourage you to, to check it out. 
I'm always talking about the latest things in different kinds of industries and stuff, as well as some, you know, things for good. So please check that out. Love it. All those links will be in the description for sure. So yeah, encourage everyone to, to go and follow Neil and thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Luke. 